Cafe at Night and Revolution in the Air. Dig at harryshill.net and Facebook Harry Brown's Farm. Have you ever wondered what song you're listening to on WERU? Did you hear something that you liked earlier and missed who performed it? WERU wants to remind you that our playlists for all music programs are posted on our station's website, WERU.org. Just look under our logo for the Playlist tab and select a show from the playlist schedule. Choose a show by date and you will see the name of the performer, the song title, and the album on which it is available as well as when the song was broadcast. Just one more reason to be a part of our online community at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with the help of the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is the history, culture, and heritage of the lobster industry in Maine. We have guests in the studio who'll share stories and readings about the lobster industry and its role in our coastal communities for generations. We'll look at questions like, when did our forefathers start catching lobster, and how and why did lobster become the huge economic engine that it is today, and also the cultural icon that it is today? So the lobster is the story of the Maine coast both yesterday and today. And in the studio with me today are three people who can help tell us this story about the industry itself and also about how it inspired generations of artists and poets and also generated um, museum exhibits and books and all kinds of different ways of telling the story of the lobster industry. So... In the studio with me, we have Kathy Billings, who's the author of the recently published History Press book called The Maine Lobster Industry, A History of Culture, Conservation, and Commerce. Kathy is also the Associate Director at the Lobster Institute. Uh, Thanks, Kathy. Glad to have you. Appreciate being here, Natalie. Thanks. Great. Um, We also are joined by a recently retired lobsterman from Islesford, which is also known as Little Cranberry Isle, Jim Bright. Hi, Jim. Welcome aboard. Morning, Natalie. 
And finally, we have Rosamond Rhea, who is the project manager for a new exhibit at the Little Cranberry Island uh, Island Historical Museum called Boats and Buoys Lobstering on Little Cranberry Island. Hi, Roz. Thank you for having me this morning. Great. It's great to have you. Um, so uh, I'm really excited about having the three of you in the studio with us today because between you, we have a lobsterman. We have someone who's involved in interpreting the lobster industry through a museum exhibit, and we have someone who's written a history book about the lobster industry. So we have a great cross-section of knowledge here in this room. Um, why don't we start with having each of you just kind of tell a little bit of your connection to the lobster industry, and then we'll jump into the topic. And let's start with our lobsterman. <laughs> uh, retired lobsterman, I guess. Great. Uh, I'll point out that you would have no active lobsterman because everybody's out working today. That is very true. This is a really bad time to do a show about lobstering when you want to have some lobstermen in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I retired uh, two years ago after 38 years of lobstering. Uh, I guess I'm one of those I'm going to call transplants. I am. I am a summer uh, kid who uh, summered on Islesford, Little Cranberry, for since the mid-'50s. Uh, Islesford is unique in that the summer in winter community always got along and everybody knew everybody so when I was asked to leave an institution of higher learning I gravitated to Islesford for uh, to live here around and just started out working with a caretaker but uh, eventually ended up just going lobstering and finding it a very wonderful successful way to make a living. And you fished out of Islesford for 38 years, I think you told me. Yeah. And in 1978, um, with the forward thinking of David Thomas and Bruce Fernell, uh, 15 of the fishermen from Islesford and Big Cranberry bought out Lee Ham, who was the old-time lobster dealer there, and uh, formed a co-op with the idea that we were trying to preserve the life uh, of the village and keep people on the island to live year-round. Great. Great. And we'll look forward to hearing more about the co-op and how that works and what a co-op is. Um, Roz, tell us a little bit about your connection to the lobster industry. Ah, well, it's it's fairly new, um, although I've been a resident of Maine for uh, 30 years or so and enjoying lobster all that time. Um, uh, last August, I was invited by a new group of um, summer and winter people from Islesford, calling themselves the Friends of the Islesford Historical Museum. Uh, I was invited by them to become the project manager for an uh, exhibit that they wanted to install in um, the Islesford Historical Museum, which is an Acadia National Park property. Um, on the island. Uh, there is a room in the back of that museum that is now being offered to the community for exhibits, and uh, this group had the idea they wanted to tell the story of um, the multi-generational story of lobstermen on Islesford to show the evolution of the lobstering process and to celebrate today's lobstermen, who are a group of uh, incredibly talented, um, intellectual, uh, humanitarian, citizen scientist, uh, individuals who uh, who work together in a unique way to uh, make sure that their 
way of life is sustained and to try to uh, make sure that lobstering remains uh, the economic driver for that community. Great. Um, This show has been particularly um, enjoyable for me to prepare because I hopped on the ferry out of Northeast Harbor the other day and went out to Islesford to view the exhibit, and it was really phenomenal, and I'm looking forward to talking with you more about that exhibit and letting people know how they might be able to go out and see it. Um, I also um, thoroughly enjoyed reading Kathy Billings's new book, um, The Lobster Industry, The Main Lobster Industry, A History of Culture, Conservation, and Culture, published by the um, uh, History Press. Right. So, Kathy... Tell us a little bit about your connection. You have all kinds of connections to the lobster industry as well. Yes, I do, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Um, I've been working for the past 15 years with the Lobster Institute, which is based at the University of Maine. But it's really a uh, an industry-driven organization. It was uh, founded 28 years ago, and it was members of the industry, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, the Maine Pound Owners Association, and the Maine Import-Export Dealers Association that approached the university and said, we want a better way to connect with science um, and all the resources at the university and, and what can we do. And they connected initially with Maine Sea Grant, and the Lobster Institute was formed, and we've been working on uh, conserving the resource, lobster health issues, uh, as well as providing outreach to the industry and educational programming and so forth for for our entire 28 years. Great. And I imagine that it's your time with the Lobster Institute that inspired you to decide to write a book about the history. How did that that come about? What, What prompted you to sit down and put your pen to paper? Well, I actually was approached by the uh, History Press. They had published other books about the lobster fishery, more focused on the on the lobstermen and, and the methods of fishing and so forth. And they thought there was more to the story, and they were so right. And I was so happy to uh, be able to tell what happens after the catch comes in and how it has... The fishery itself um, created a very complex, uh, very successful industry, um, whether it be uh, lobster dealers and processors, international distribution of lobsters, how it's impacted, as we've been talking about a little bit already, the the culture, uh, how the heritage of coastal communities has really uh, focused around lobstering quite a a bit and... uh, you know, I, I talk in my introduction that um, when I first came to the Institute, it was um, lobstering to me was maybe what a lot of people perceive it to be. You go out, there are buoys in the you know, harbor and the boats are there and it's interesting to watch and the, the guys go out, they catch their lobsters, they bring them in. That was all really that I knew. Um, but over my 15 years, I, I've learned there is so, so much more. And I, I talk about the fact that you, you know, hear the rumble of the lobster boat in the morning and how quaint that is and, you know, lovely to hear. But if you think about it, there are about 4,500 or so boats all rumbling out of the harbor at the same time and 300 million buoys in the water. And that gives you a sense that this is not just, you know, your local guy going out. This is very, very big business. Yeah, yeah, that is that. That's those numbers are just huge. They're yeah. hard to wrap your brain around, even when you're 
standing on shore and seeing all those buoys, sort of the multiplier effect in every harbor. But it wasn't always that way. So where, how did the, how did the industry start? When do we think that people first started harvesting lobsters from the sea? And then how did that sort of morph into um, starting to sell them and ship them back in the day? Right. Well, if you look back historically, the first recorded lobster catch, and I'm going to emphasize that word recorded and come back to it in a minute, but the first recorded lobster catch was in 1605. And there was um, a vessel, the Archangel, that was captained by uh, George Weymouth that left England and came over the Atlantic, and they um, came ashore in Maine somewhere near Monhegan Island. And they were very fortunate, or I I should say we were very fortunate, Mm -hmm. that they had with them someone who was a historical recorder. And uh, I'm going to just, if I could, read just a little bit from the book about his uh, take. Actually, this information came from research done by Professor Ronald Banks, uh, who was at the University of Maine, who has since unfortunately passed, but I, I was fortunate enough to take his main history course at the university, as a, a number of people were. But he um, found this in the records. Um, they left, uh, the Archangel left uh, in March of 1605, came over, and according to James Rosier, uh, they, uh, let's see, they had kept a written account of the observations and of the St. George's Islands, where they left uh, after they left Monhegan, they moved to the St. George's Islands, he wrote in the old English of the day that they had found a convenient harbor which it pleased God to send us, fair beyond our expectations, and a safe berth defended from all winds, and an excellent depth of water for ships of any burthen. Here they took respite from their days at sea. Fish was bountiful in Maine's pristine waters, and some of the men set out each day in the vessel's shallop, which is a small, open boat fitted with oars and sails for use in shallow waters, and they set out to catch cod, haddock, and other small fish. It was on Tuesday, May 21st, that Rosier reported, quote, "'Towards night we drew with a small net of twenty fathoms very nigh the shore. We got about thirty very good and great lobsters.' many rockfish, some plays, and other small fishes, and fishes called lumps, very pleasant to the taste. And we generally observed that all the fish of whatever kind soever we took were well-fed, fat, and sweet to the taste. (laughs) So that marks the very first recorded lobster catch. And uh, I I did mention I was going to come back to that word recorded because obviously the Native Americans were catching lobster well before the English settlers came over, and there was um, many indications of that when they found uh, areas that looked like there had been uh, feasts that had taken place. Mm. They found shells and areas where there were fire pits and so forth, which uh, basically were more than likely the first lobster bakes that the Native Americans conducted on the shores. So that's a tradition that's carried on right through today, obviously. I I like in that quote how the lobsters they pulled up were good and great. Good and great. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, So then little by little, the industry grew. Now it's well-known main lore that lobster used to be the poor person's food, right? Um, Right. Is that true? 
that that lore. Everybody sort of knows these stories, and we all tell tourists the stories that you know you could only eat lobster if you were in jail three days a week, and and that was in the books and all that kind of stuff. What if that? What what have you been able to uncover in terms of that lore and these stories? Well, some of that uh, more than likely is just myth, but uh, I, I'm certain there's a grain of truth to it. Um, mm-hmm. The lobster was so plentiful at the time that you could basically walk into the waters and reach down and pick them up, um, which is also this author's theory that it was probably the Native American women who were the very first to catch the lobsters because it was more of a, a harvesting and less of a hunting activity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that again, just a theory. But yes, there are stories that uh, apprentices who came over had it written into their contracts that they couldn't be served lobster more than three times a week because you know it was so plentiful they didn't they didn't want to eat it every day. Um, so it you know it it's hard to pinpoint that in any historical record, but uh, I, I'm sure there's a grain of truth to it. Yeah, yeah, there's always, always seems to be a grain of truth to these old stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then um, how did it um, transition? to sort of becoming the luxury item um that that i mean that, that's probably a big chunk of history there so feel free to break it down for us sure. a little bit well um i found that there really are parallels between uh the growth of the lobster industry and two other um occurrences one being the the advances in transportation and the other being the advances in food processing technology and uh, that it's covering a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of ground uh, and territory. But uh, if you think about it, the lobster originally um, it has to be consumed basically from the the live lobster immediately onto your plate. And the difficulties in growing a market early on came from being able to transport that live lobster to various marketplaces. So it was a very much a local uh, food item for a number of years. And the real um, turning point in the industry, if you will, when it really became more of an industry than just a local fishery, was the introduction of a sailing vessel that was called a smack. And the smack was actually something that had been used in Europe. It was uh, an invention of the Dutch. And it had a hollowed-out well in the the center of the boat that allowed seawater to come in, and that could be used as a holding tank, if you will, uh, directly built into the boat. So you could put your live lobsters into this holding well, and then you'd be able to sail them on down to Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and so forth. So that's that's when those came up to um, New England. They started out in Connecticut, found their way uh, into Harp's Well. It was actually a gentleman named Elijah Oaks who ran the first smack boats in Maine. And uh, they didn't find their way into Maine until the um, early 1800s, around 1834. And that's when it really started to to branch out. And if you track along the lines of um, innovations in transportation, obviously once they were able to use the train as a method of transportation, you weren't limited to coastal markets. You could start bringing your markets inland. And then with the introduction of airplanes, and particularly after World War II when they uh, really started using planes for cargo and not just for passengers, that's when an overseas market was opened up to the lobster industry. And that has just grown immeasurably Mm -hmm. ever since. 
So if you're looking at the growth of the live market, you can really key that into all the innovations in the transportation industry. Mm. That's fascinating. And um, Jim, I'm going to look to you here for a minute because I know that for modern day lobstermen, transportation and how you get lobsters to market is huge, um, particularly if you're out on an island. Um, So uh, you and your fellow lobstermen out on Islesford about 40 years ago or so, somewhere in there, started the co-op. Um, what was the driving force to what was it about getting lobsters more efficiently to market? And well, what's, the, what is the co-op? The co-op was uh, the driving force was to keep a locally owned buying station in the community and, again, provide a place, uh, a living for the community, really, that wasn't controlled by outside sources. Um, and that was done in 1978. And as uh, as I mentioned, there were, I think, 15 of us that were the original people that put in $1,000 apiece. Uh-huh. And there were 25 members, and which is about the number they have now. So, and what we do is, at the end of the day, you come in, and unload your catch, and at that time were wooden crates and modern plastic crates now, which has made a big difference in the industry itself. And they would be sold to truckers or um, pound owners that would then keep them until sometime in the fall when they would sell them again. Um, And they'd get trucked all over New England. Uh And the co-op recently has tried to... uh, add value to what they have by uh, they will now ship lobsters. They have a website that you can go to and order lobsters or actually meat, freshly picked meat. They do not sell uh, frozen meat, which it's uh, all freshly picked and shipped right to you that day. Uh, And they've actually just opened a little um, stand at the end of the wharf where they will sell you the standard tourist items, T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're working on getting a license to uh, be able to sell you lobster rolls and, and stuff like that. Oh, great, yeah. great. When I went out to Alsford the other day, I walked into the little stand where they were selling lobster and T-shirts and mugs, mm-hmm. and I, I did my part. I bought my kid a T-shirt that says, <laughs> well, thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, what is it, Alsford Island Lobster? Is that the, the name of the... Uh, it's, it's actually well, the technical uh, cranberry Isles cranberry Isles co-op. Okay, great, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so, if <clears throat> before the co-op, where were Islesford lobstermen uh, landing their catch? Well, so they were landing them on, on Islesford to a uh, man named Lee Ham, who owned the, the lobster, the dock at the time. And when I was really small, there were two. Uh, Elmer Sperling owned it, which is now the restaurant dock. Okay, was an active. Uh, buying station and um eventually uh elmer retired from that and lee became the only buyer and he just he wanted to retire get out of it so um david thomas and bruce fernell went to see uh, a man named clayton howard who was a lawyer in damascata who had formed other co-ops and they created the paper got the paperwork done and somehow through Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blind luck, we have a successful business. <laughs> we actually uh, went through a series of uh, questionable managers and us not really knowing what to do. But in the last, I think it's 19 years, Mark Nyman has been there and has done a very good job of building our business. And 
keeping this viable. It seems, you you know, you're raising questions about running a business. And one of the things that seems to really have, and, and I'm curious about your take on this in the last 30, 40 years or so that has changed is that, um, fishermen sort of have to be businessmen as much as having the knowledge of where to fish and how to fish and how to use the gear to really become an excellent fisherman. You have to be a businessman. You have to be a scientist. You have to be able to negotiate with the Department of Marine Resources. There's just so many different (laughs) layers to what being an effective fisherman today might mean. Well, you are. You're a small businessman. Mm -hmm. And if you don't manage your money or put the hours in, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. And that's really, that's the key. Put your hours in and keep going. Yeah. And manage your money. Right. And um, so a stone throw from the co-op on Islesford is the museum. Um, and what's the, what's been, how did the museum come about? And what's the, mu- the museum's role in the community there on the waterfront? Uh, the story of the museum goes back many years. Um, uh, a summer resident there, William Otis Sautel, uh, who uh, was a professor at uh, Haverford College, um, uh, saw had a, took a great interest in the island's history and the people of the island. And uh, he used the old ship's chandlery building, which is right on the shore. It's a, a blue uh, clabbered building called the Blue Duck um, as his first museum. He started in 1919 uh, when his collection of... Islesford um, history and memorabilia um, expanded beyond the scope of that building. He decided to put his collection into a brand new fireproof brick building, which he had built uh, just north of that original building. Um, And so in 1927, that building opened with his collection uh, inside, and it was a drawing point for the entire community and for people who would come out to Islesford uh, on a day's journey uh, from Mount Desert Island and other areas. Um, After World War II, uh, the property was transferred to Acadia National Park. And since then, the park's mission has been to exhibit the history of the Cranberry Isles, which are five islands that make up the town of the Cranberry Isles. in recent years, that old brick building has started to show uh, it started to deteriorate a little bit and, and it has it 's a damp building. Um, the park has had to remove some of that original collection from the building because it was uh, it, it, it just was was deteriorating too badly, and uh, they felt that as protectors of the history, they needed to remove the collection. That opened up the possibility for community groups to put exhibits in there. And so last year, a group called the Ashley Bryan Center put in an exhibit about uh, the wonderful artist and resident um, uh, of Islesford, Ashley Bryan. And this year, the Friends of the Islesford Historical Museum has um, created this exhibit about the community's heritage, centering on lobstering, uh, telling the story of the uh, many generations who have fished, uh, faced the dangers of the water every day, uh, come back with their catch, supported their families, lived there year-round. Um, and, and it's a wonderful story. It's a, it, it's, a, 
it's just it's just a great way to get to know an island and its people is through the story of lobstering mm. there. Uh, the, the exhibit will be up through this summer and next summer, and after that, the group hopes to put another exhibit in. One of the things we hope will come of this exhibit is an interest in the the museum, and um, we are looking for hope to be able to do some fundraising around these exhibits that will help the park uh, maintain the building for the future. Great, great. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and WERU.org. Um, this is um, Coastal Conversations, and our topic today is the heritage of the Maine lobster industry. My guests in the studio are Jim Bright, a retired lobsterman from Islesford, and we have Roz, I think I'm pronouncing your last name wrong. Ray. Roz Ray, um, who uh, helped coordinate a brand new fabulous exhibit out on Islesford um, dedicated to the history of the lobster industry on the islands. And we have Kathy Billings from the Lobster Institute, who also recently published a fantastic little book called The Maine Lobster Industry, A History of Culture, Conservation, and Commerce. Um, one of the things that, that struck me about the exhibit when I went out a couple days ago was the integration of um, the arts in the exhibit about um, the history of the lobster industry. And I think this is touched on as well in Kathy's book in terms of the the impact that the lobster industry has had on our culture in so many ways. And in the exhibit, um, there are many poems, there's artwork, there's bird carvings, one of which was done by our own Jim here in the studio. Um, and in the book, in your book, Kathy, you also talk a lot about sort of the larger impact that the industry has had on on tourism, on heritage, and our coastal communities in general. Do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about what what you're finding is that connection? Sure, um, it's almost impossible to go anywhere on the coast of Maine these days without finding that little shop that has the mugs and the t-shirts, um, and that is a you know a business, if you will, that really again depends on the fishery, depends on the lobstering. And I'm today wearing my, my gold necklace that is in the shape of a lobster claw. So uh, you're talking jewelry, you're talking paintings, you're talking uh, sculpture, wood carvings, just about anything you can find in the shape of a lobster. I even have a pair of socks that have <laughs> lobsters on them. Uh, and, you know, these are small little things, but if you look at it collectively, there's a whole other business that revolves around the lobster fishery. And it's... Also, I think, an indication of how um, proud and connected the communities are along the coast to the fishery. They're very much intertwined. As I, I say in my book, uh, the, the fishery is woven into the fabric of the heritage of, of these communities. It's almost in, inseparable. And uh, if you go anywhere, um, you'll, you'll find a picture in my book. There's a, a cutout, two cutouts of lobsters that are life-size uh, in front of a market in Bunkers Harbor. You know, why, why would you put something like that in front of a, mar- uh, a market of all places? And it's the kind where you can stick your face in the face of the lobster <laughs> and get your picture taken, you know? Uh, so it's everything from the ridiculous to the sublime. There are some yeah. fabulous, fabulous paintings. Um, there's a, a picture in the book also that is a, a snippet from 
a painting that was done in 1605 by a man named Pierre de Ring, and it's called Golden Goblet on Blue Velvet. Mm. But right on that blue velvet-covered table is a magnificent lobster. It is gorgeous. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's just a, a wonderful connection between the arts and uh, a really working waterfront type of uh, hard, you know, kind of labor-intensive industry. Yeah. 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 One of the things I'd like to to mention uh, in the creation of this uh, exhibit, which was beautifully designed by um, a professional designer, Bet Swanton of Mount Desert Island, uh, and built by Maida Ballard, um, was that the community of Islesford lent its heart and soul to this exhibit. Um, They contributed poems. They contributed boat models. They contributed paintings. um, They contributed artifacts, their own stories, their time. Um, it, It was just a wonderful opportunity for me to get to know a community that I that until last August I knew very little about, um, but my learning I hope um, and my coordination of of all of the different aspects that that have to come together in order to create an exhibit, um, uh, just I, I hope my own learning comes through in the exhibit um, and offers to the casual visitor there. Um, the opportunity to see a community through its livelihood mm-hmm. um, and the community that that uses that livelihood in lots of ways um, they not only Jim and, and his fellow um, lobstermen not only catch the product but they then um, take inspiration from their work and create other things as well the arts the boat the poems. Yeah. Um, I'd be happy to read a poem if you'd yeah, like that'd at be this great. Point. That'd be great. Um, yeah. So there. So as Roz is pulling out one of the poems, one of the things that's really fantastic about the exhibit is, as she said, it includes a lot of artwork of all different kinds by by the lobstermen themselves to really kind of uh, illustrate the multifaceted yeah. nature of these folks. Um, so let's hear one. Yeah, Jack Merrill uh, has been a lobsterman out there for uh, s- several decades. Um, and he every year goes to a um, fisher poet gathering out in Astoria, Oregon. And uh, if you look him up on the website, you can hear him read this particular poem. It's called Fall Fishing. Rainbow sky over colored mountains, clouds float in black fists. The ocean seethes in acrobatic tumbles, white and blue, yellow-green foaming like mankind. The wind blows salt spray and cold awareness into the faces of the men who haul back the past. Hmm. That's a wonderful, especially that last line, the Mm. men who haul back the past. Um, Before we go on, I just want to invite our listeners, um, if you have any comments or questions for our guests, or if you yourself are a lobsterman and want to chime in, um, we are going to open up the lines and welcome your your calls. Um, our toll-free call-in number is one 625 9378 That's 1-866-625-WERU. 
Um, and uh, Jim, you said something earlier before we were on air that really struck a chord for me that you said, um, and, and you'll have to fix my quote if I'm getting it wrong, but you basically were, said, you know, lobstermen are just regular people. And so to me that says, well, then, of course, some of them are writers, some of them are authors, some of them are bird carvers like yourselves or like yourself. Um, t- t- tell a little more about that in terms of the folks that you've been out lobstering with for a few decades. What kind of people are, who, who are your buddies? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily names. <laughs> I can hear some uh, laughter coming off the water at this moment. Because <laughs> they're all listening. This is a right? family show, guys, so let's keep calm. <laughs> um, well, I was interested in Kathy's book at there are other books out there that lobstermen or fishermen in general have a reputation of being hard drinking and carousing and just, and yes, some of that goes on when you're younger, but most of them are just small businessmen trying to make a living and they have interests like everybody else that are outside their job. You have Rick Alley, who's, um, when the main uh, duck stamp contest, uh, probably 10 times or more. Wow. Um, so the he, duck stamps that we're seeing and using in the post office yep. might very well be his, his art. Yep. Neat. They, uh, if he wins, he has to wait a year to, to before he can come back <laughs> in. So <laughs> I think they did that to keep him out. Um, <laughs> but you have Jack Merrill and his... Uh, you know, po- poetry writing. David Thomas was a school teacher before he came. I mean, it's just a wide variety of, of uh, educated people out there that that are lobstermen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you've got you've got uh, Ted Sperling, who in the winter does um, a humanitarian medical yeah. mission to Cost- South Costa Rica Costa, or, Costa Rica or something. Or yeah. I'm not sure which country, but uh, goes with the medical mission from Mount Desert Island every year. So, you know, lots of interests beyond the shores of, of Little Cranberry Island. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Ross had mentioned before that they're also fishermen scientists. And mm. I think that's a really interesting uh, characteristic of a lot of the lobstermen out there now. They uh, want to contribute to the information about the resource. They are interested in sustaining the resource probably more than anybody. And uh, so their observations, what they see every day when they're out there, you know, the trends they're seeing and so forth, and they're they're willing to work with science and contribute that information. So that's a, another whole layer, if you will, of their character. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, you, you said, Kathy, that there are how many lobstermen out there? Uh, there's about 4,500. There may be a few more licenses than that, but not everyone actually uses their license sometimes. They just hold on to it uh, for maybe the next year. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A whole lot of people make their living lobstering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a call by a gentleman named Patrick. Um, Patrick, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you quite well. Hi, I just thought I'd, I'd fill out a little bit of the uh, m- mention of history. Uh, Great. Earlier, concerning the lobster, there was absolutely a stigma uh, It's not myth. Um, and the reason being, you mentioned the, the plentifulness uh, and et cetera. But uh, so that the stigma was this, that you, uh, if you didn't have the means, you didn't have money, you were eating lobster, and so there was a time when you hid your lobster shells mm-hmm. in the back yard, 
so that people didn't know you were eating them. Huh. The stigma was, at, like you mentioned, you know, jails or something like that. Well, no, it was a stigma because, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure do. Popper's food, and they that's, called it. That's, so that's why I withheld, because of the stigma, my uh, town. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, Thanks, Patrick. It, it's not a myth. <laughs> Thanks for that call. Yeah, that's that's a great point. This whole other dimension of the history and the stigma affiliated with it. Kathy, what, yeah, what do you, and, what do you think? Yeah, and when that stigma started to turn around, you had uh, asked earlier, you know, what uh, what made it more of a luxury item, per se, yeah. than, than something else? Well, uh, the way the story goes for that is it was the Rockefellers who were very instrumental in making that uh shift in perception, if you will. Uh, they summered in Maine. Um, most people know they contributed the land for Acadia National Park and so forth. So in their summer cottages, they would entertain people from New York, Philadelphia, and so forth. They'd come up by uh, train, by carriage, and so forth, and they would be served lobster at the Rockefellers. And if it was good enough for the Rockefellers, well... My goodness, it's going to be good enough for for everybody, and and that's one of the stories that they attribute to the to the turning point of the perception of the lobster is you know, that the accolades that it was given at the time really started to grow and it became much more popular. That I I read that part in your book, and I had not heard that that dimension of the story. That's fascinating, um, Patrick. I wanted to say thanks for the call. Um, Jim, when you first started lobstering 38 years ago or so, um, what was it like then? What was Where where was ro- lobster in the sort of what role was it then between sort of stigma and luxury item? What what stage were we at? What was going on? Well, I think it was, it was considered a luxury item, but um, it was uh, – everything was shipped away. So if somebody was eating it somewhere, mm. uh, you always heard that uh, you'd get a dollar in the – Restaurants were charging fifteen dollars for it. Uh, I think we've all learned now through our own mark as marketing has become important to the co-op or whoever that uh, those added costs explain why the table price is so high. Um, but I think it's 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 becoming more of a not necessary luxury item. People are demanding the lobster uh, out of the shell more than they ever did before. So that's where that's where it's going to fresh meat, frozen meat. And and how does that go to market, Kathy? What's the in terms of um, how it's processed? In your book, you talked a lot about how some percentage goes to Canada and then comes back. Can you kind of untease that for us in terms of where lobster that is not the live market? Um, sure, the, the processing bit. Right, and uh, Canada and the U.S. lobster industries are are very much intertwined. And a lot of that is uh, centered around a couple of different things. Uh, one is that a great portion of the main lobster catch is the soft-shell lobster, uh, fairly newly molted. Uh, it's a little less vigorous than a lobster that's further along in their development after shedding their shell. Um, so it's not really the, the type of lobster that ships very well, uh, again, if we're talking the, the live market which is um, you get a better price for a live lobster uh, for the most part if, if you're um, talking about an, an international kind of market. But it's very difficult to ship those soft-shell 
lobsters internationally. The hard shell will ship fairly well. Um, and so we have to find a market for these soft shell lobsters that the main lobstermen are catching. And for a number of years, a, a good percentage, if it wasn't sold locally to a restaurant or to local consumers, uh, local supermarkets, it would go to a Canadian processing plant. And the reason it went to Canada is that's where the infrastructure was. That's where um, the processors were located. And primarily, that was due to um, an ancient law on the books. I call it ancient, but a, you know, a very old law on the books that was geared towards uh, conservation. When it was put in place, it was, a, it was a reasonable and a good law. And basically, it said that you can't separate your lobster when... Uh, as a dealer or a distributor, you can't separate the lobster, which means you couldn't take the claws and the tails and, mm. and pick the meat uh, separately like that. It had to be sold as a whole intact product. Um, and that was because the original conservation laws that limited the size of a lobster uh, took their measurement from the tip of the tail to the tip of the claw. So it was the entire size of the lobster that was measured. So if you were to separate it, then you wouldn't be able to tell uh, as an enforcement agent if it was a legal-sized lobster or not. And that was on the books, believe it or not, in Maine until 2005, even though they had changed many years ago the way they measured the lobster. They only measured the body, um, the carapace it's called, and not the entire length of the lobster. So as a result, all the processing was done in Canada, and probably a good 80% or so of the catch from Maine would, would go up to Canada and become, at that point, product of Canada. So it's a an interesting dynamic that developed between the two countries that way. And if you look at the catch in Canada, they have very defined seasons. Uh, they have 34 lobster fishing districts, and each one has a very defined season. In Maine, you can catch at any time. So uh, as a result, the seasons in Canada were scheduled around when they would catch the hard-shell, vigorous lobster that was great for the live market. In in Maine, fishing any time, they really started um, catching really more soft-shell lobster than hard-shell lobster. And today, that's the majority of what's coming out of Maine is soft-shell. Yes, that's still the case, um, although they changed that processing law in 2005, mm -hmm. so we're seeing more lobster processing being done in Maine than had been in the past, but the, still the greatest percentage is done in Canada. So that's mm -hmm. a, a, an interesting little statistic is Maine, uh, or the U.S., is the greatest exporter of lobster to Canada, and the U.S. is also the greatest importer of lobster from Canada. <laughs> right. And how does that uh, how is that reflected out on Islesford, Jim? In terms of what gets harvested and what's going through the co-op out there, is it mostly soft shell? And do you know where it's headed? Well, I think you catch uh, three quarters of your lobsters uh, between July and December, and they would be all you call them shedders. But it's starting in September. You get what it's called a hard shell shedder, where the meat is is uh, filled out and they're shippable live. Then you really can't. Sh ship anything in August it's any distance they can go to the processor pretty quickly but you don't want to be sending them across the country they're just they won't survive yeah yeah 
Um, if you're just tuning in, we're uh, this is Coastal Conversations, and we're talking about the history and the heritage of the lobster industry in Maine. We still have a few minutes for some calls. If anyone wants to chime into the conversation, our number is one 626 9378 That's 1-866-625-WERU. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the the new generation of of folks who are out lobstering. So we've gone way back in time. Um, who's getting into lobstering today? Is it still the sort of tradition where it gets handed down from father to son? How how is that how is that looking? What's the new generation look like of lobstermen? Well, I get... <laughs> <laughs> any of you? Uh, I, I I'll go in our community. It's, uh-huh. uh there are. Members of my generation, which are in the mid-60s. Yes, you're getting there, guys. Um, <laughs> the Fernals and the Alleys, the uh, Spurlings. The Fernals and, and the Spurlings, this is the last generation. Mm. They're, they, they're all spring. Have, well, Ted has all girls, so they're, but they certainly could go lobstering. They've chose not to. One's becoming a doctor. Uh, and the, we now have the Hadlocks and the Alleys who are – have another generation coming in of young and there's families that have moved in that uh the philbrooks that have three sons now lobstering so we have a where there was concern but now we have a strong contingent of young coming in and the state helps that by allowing the high school kids who can show that they've lobstered to move right in as commercial fishermen instead of get going on the hated waiting list is that specific to the islands, or is that no? That's statewide. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and what have you been seeing, Kathy, in terms of across in other parts of the coast, in terms of the new generation coming into it? Yeah, it's uh, it's similar to the story that uh, Jim was telling, um, and it's been mentioned before on the program. Roz brought it up. It's a very um, um, very much a, a family tradition. It's been handed down over the years. Um, and we're still seeing that today. I mean, there's a, a lobsterman on our board from Swans Island. He's an eighth-generation lobsterman, although uh, he's not quite so young anymore, but he's not <laughs> quite in his 60s yet either. But uh, it was interesting, Jim mentioned the, the dreaded waiting list, and mm-hmm. there are many who want to get involved in the lobster fishery, um, but the uh, state has a system that actually di- differs by the various lobster zones in Maine. There's seven different zones. Um, they have what's called a limited entry, and it's uh, designed to be, again, a, a management tool, a conservation measure, if you will. And in some cases, one lobsterman has to retire his or her license before the next person can come in. Uh, in some cases, it's perhaps two have to retire their licenses before one can come in. Uh, it, so it varies a little bit, but there is that system in place that uh, does keep a cap, if you will, on the on the number of uh, licenses that, that can be issued. So uh, even though it's a desirable industry for uh, some of the younger guys to get into, it, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to the waiting list, there's an apprenticeship program that's been introduced, uh, which indicates um, that they're, again, looking out to be sure that 
people that come in as new lobstermen are aware of everything that's come before them as far as uh, the conservation measures and regulations. And then, of course, the safety of being out on the boat. They have to go out with a licensed lobsterman for a certain number of hours and learn these things so that they're not just going out totally unprepared just mm-hmm. because they think, oh, wow, this is a great way to make a living. You know, it's something that has to be learned just like any other uh, industry. Yeah. I was struck in the exhibit, there was a fantastic poem um, by one of the lobstermen out on Islesford, um, uh, Stephanie Alley, where she was, she's teaching the next generation. Um, Roz, would you be willing to share that poem with us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, Stephanie um, uh, is uh, the one female lobster woman right now on Islesford, but she has a couple of young girls helping her as her sternman. She wrote a poem called Best Sternman. Our days start 5.30 a.m. My two sternmen, B, age 10, Natasha, 14, meet at the dock, ready to go haul traps. Their orange grindens, fishing boat boots, breathe the word fisherman. Thermos hot cocoa clutched under arm, mum's cookies packed in lunchbox. We balance ourselves into the skiff, head across harbor, early morning light, a hint of fog. Our days are filled with fun. Seals come to eat old bait. Gulls grab bait from the seals. Times to play, times to work. Natasha bans lobsters. B baits bags. They do everything sternmen do. Become part of the flow, symmetry of motion. It gives me new purpose to pass on what I know. To each, we each gain a new experience, a new confidence. And she is definitely um, encouraging people to learn about lobstering and. Uh, Stephanie has a little side business of actually taking tourists out on her boat um, and giving them the experience of hauling traps. So, Yeah, and um, it, I know in the sort of travelers to Maine, they're more and more they're looking for experiences that get them close to sort of the real deal out there, how people make a living, and it, it sounds like Stephanie is really doing that. Um, Kathy, I know that <clears throat> you had pulled out a couple of other readings Um before we we run out of time, is there some? Do you have something else you might read to us from your book? Sure. Um, one of the things I was able to draw on as I was putting this book together is um, the Lobster Institute had conducted a number of interviews with some senior lobstermen. Uh, our oral history project. Uh, we had some kickoff funding from the Maine Community Foundation that uh, that let us do this, and I. I talk in my book about what it was like when some of these fishermen were first starting out. And uh, in particular, um, I share a a story about Allison Bishop, uh, who's a lobsterman from Korea, and we interviewed him together with his good friend Dana Rice, and it was just so unique to see the interaction between the two. It's like the camera wasn't there. They were just sitting there having a conversation (laughs) about the way it was, and they talked about when the price of lobster first went over a dollar a pound. Which would have been around when? Oh, gosh. Uh, I wish you hadn't asked me that. Because Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 40 years ago? Uh, probably a little more than that. Okay. It was when uh, their fathers were catching lobsters. Oh, okay. And we interviewed them in the 80s when they were pretty much in their 80s, so... Okay. I'm not going to do the math here because we're <laughs> running out of time. But <laughs> Okay, uh, so Allison Bishop, he says he remembered paying um, 10 cents a quart 
for milk when he first started fishing and bread was five cents a loaf. His first boat set him back $1,400. He remembered paying 50 cents a bushel for herring bait and receiving 38 cents per pound boat price for his lobster. He and good friend Dana Rice spoke of the first time the boat price for lobster went over a dollar. Here's how the conversation went. And I, I can't do the fabulous Down East accents that they have very well. But Allison, we'll go back up to when I first started. In the winter months, of course, the days then were short, and all day you couldn't haul too many traps. But if you could go out and get anywhere from 25 to 50 pounds through January and February, you had a good catch. Dana, yes. <laughs> Allison, and you didn't get no big price for them either. When the lobster got up to $1.50 a pound, you had it made. That was something else. Dana, yes, tall cotton then. Allison, yes, that was something else. <laughs> Dana, I heard my grandfather say more than once, Chum, you'll never see lobsters go up to $1 a pound because nobody will ever be able to afford to eat them. Allison, my father would have agreed. The day, the day they got a dollar pound for his lobsters, when they told him what the price was, he couldn't believe it. In fact, there was a fisherman in Korea standing on the wharf when he came in, and he looked down and said, Harry, you're never going to believe what the price of lobster is today. He told him one dollar a pound. Dana, how do you think Harry's reaction would be if they came back now and saw what the price is and the boats and everything? Allison, they'd look up, look at the boats, some of the catches, and they would almost lose their breath. Dana, yes, yes, they would. Allison, they really would. Dana, it's hard to believe in our lifetime that we've seen the changes we've seen in the lobster fishery. Yes. It's it's pretty hard to, to just sink that into your head. That's great. That's great. Thanks for reading that. If you want more of this kind of storytelling and history of the Maine lobster industry, I highly recommend. Um, well, Kathy, tell us the title and where you can get the book in just about 20 seconds. <laughs> it's uh, The Maine Lobster Industry, A History of Culture, Conservation, and Commerce. A lot of coastal uh, community bookstores are carrying it. You can also get it directly through the Lobster Institute. You can a- email us at lobsterinstitute at maine.edu or go to our website, lobsterinstitute.org, and we'll ship it to you. Great. Thanks so much for coming. Mm-hmm. And Roz, how might someone get out to Islesford and go check out the wonderful exhibit? Yeah, I'd hope hope families will go. There's lots of interactives and things for children in, in the exhibit as well. Um, there are ferry services out of Northeast Harbor and Southwest Harbor. Beale and Bunker runs out of Northeast. Uh, Cranberry Cove Ferry goes out of Southwest. And there are also water taxis. You can find those by uh, looking for transportation to Islesford on Great. the web and our website for the exhibit is www.islesfordhistoricalmuseum.info Great, thank you. And Jim, if anyone wants to get some of that lobster from you guys, uh, littlecranberrylobster.com. Great. Thanks so much to all three of you for joining me today and helping us tell the story of the heritage of the lobster industry here on Coastal Conversations. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, the long-standing WERU public affairs program that's in, that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. 
Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Thanks to our guests in the studio today. Thanks to Patrick for our call. And stay tuned to on, for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the